This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 13th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. What if all it took to render vast chunks of federal regulation unenforceable was some civil disobedience and some generous people with vision? Charles Murray believes it's both possible and promising. He discusses his proposal in the new book, By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. We spoke last month. Going through the first portion of your book, it seems like a pretty bad story. Uh, and if this were an adventure, about uh, halfway through, I'd be wondering, well, how are these people going to get out of this? <laughs> so um, how did our Constitution get broken in the way that you describe? Well, let me just outline first what this first part of the book is trying to do. I think the title of the first part is Coming to Terms with Where We Are. Because a lot of people uh, who are libertarians and, for that matter, conservatives think, gee, if only we get nine uh, good justices in the Supreme Court, or even five, or if only we got a big enough margin in the House of Representatives and Senate and so forth. And I'm saying in the first five chapters, forget about it. If you're talking about better policy in education or welfare or something, sure, you can get there with those assets. But if you're talking about rolling back the power of government, you can't get there from here with the normal political process. And the Constitution is exactly illustrative of that. So in the 1930s, the Constitution was still very close to intact. There had been, you know, tweaks at the edges, but the enumerated powers were still a live issue. You could only do what the enumerated powers said. The Commerce Clause still meant an ordinary interpretation of the Commerce Clause. And over a period of just five years from 1937 to – well, six years to 43, you had about half a dozen key cases where they cannot be reversed because once you said, oh, Congress may spend on the general welfare and is not limited by the enumerated powers, you have had since then the expansion of the federal government that the Supreme Court cannot reverse. If the Supreme Court, by a miracle, tomorrow said, gee, we're going to go back to the enumerated powers, 90 percent of the spending of the uh, federal government would be unconstitutional. No Supreme Court can do that. No president can enforce that. So the Constitution's broken, can't go home again, come to terms with it, and let's think of something else. And part of that is the regulatory state, non-delegation as a doctrine is effectively dead. Yeah, this was a direct result of the progressives of the early 20th century, led by Woodrow Wilson, who loved the idea of the disinterested expert who could solve policy problems without all these nasty pressures from politics, and they would give us the correct solution. Well, you couldn't get away with that for a long time because of what was called the non-delegation doctrine. All laws in the United States are to be enacted by the Congress, and so when the Congress passes legislation, it's supposed to have an intelligible principle that it gives to the government agencies to implement what Congress wanted. And in a case involving the National Broadcasting Corporation, the, the uh, Supreme Court said, well, you know, uh, a, a general instruction is good enough. So you can ask the regulatory agencies to make up regulations that are fair, that are equitable. Good regulations. Good regulations. And, and basically, you're giving them carte blanche to write the regulations they want. 
All right. So given that and the huge growth of the bureaucratic and administrative state where we have judges within departments who are effectively creating law, Mm -hmm. you advocate that uh, business people, entrepreneurs in particular, simply stop obeying some of those laws. That's right. Massive civil disobedience um, backstopped by private uh, defense funds or as – Uh, Chip Miller over at the Institute for Justice said when I told him my plan, he said, so you want to pour gas of sugar into the government's gas tank. And that's what I want to do. I don't want to outline it in detail. I had to write a book, so it uh, takes more time than I have here. But here's the essence of it. You go through the regulatory code and you identify a lot of regulations that are stupid and pointless. And I give specific criteria for stupid and pointless. But uh, you identify regulations that when people ignore them, they aren't doing bad things. On the contrary, a lot of times it enables them to do their jobs better, to raise their families better, to cooperate with their neighbors in solving community problems better. Uh, And the way you can get away with this is because there's a dirty little secret about the regulatory state. It's like the Wizard of Oz. Caleb, you're old enough to have seen The Wizard of Oz, right? So this booming, commanding voice that scares the bejesus out of uh, any individual citizen because regulatory bureaucrats can and do say to small business people and to homeowners, you try to fight this and we'll ruin you because you can't afford to litigate against them. Suppose you had an attorney show up at the point at which the bureaucrat says, try to fight this and we'll ruin you. And the attorney says, we're going to litigate this person's case. We're going to litigate it to the max. We are going to tie you up as long as we possibly can. And when you find he's guilty of violating this stupid regulation, as you eventually will, we will reimburse his fine. What have you accomplished? And suppose this is happening on a big scale. Suppose you've got the equivalent of legal aid, which now helps poor people that is available to ordinary citizens who are being senselessly harassed by the federal government. The legal staffs of these regulatory agencies are quite small. The number of inspectors are quite small. They cannot afford to have a whole lot of people ignoring their laws. They can't enforce them. And so that's what I want. I want a foundation that I call the Madison Fund that provides that kind of legal assistance. I want occupations to form defense funds. Caleb, what I really want is for us to treat the government as an insurable hazard, uh, like tornadoes or locusts. And so you, you pay a small amount into your legal defense fund if you are a dentist, let's say, and if OSHA comes after you, they will take over your defense and drive the, drive the feds crazy. Because you never know when government may strike. That's it. It's just like a tornado. Uh, if you are live in Tornado Alley down in Oklahoma, you do not build a tornado-proof house. You buy house insurance. One of the, the things that I find uh, attractive about this idea in particular is that sometimes providing a, a credible uh, statement of a willingness to dig in for the long haul is all you need. That's all you need. You're right. You aren't going to have to litigate thousands of cases. What you're going to have to do is establish credibility so that as soon as uh, a bureaucrat comes after somebody and they get the word that the Madison Fund is going to take up the defense, 
all at once they have to say to themselves, oh, gee, do we really want to do this? Right now, the ordinary American knows that he or she cannot afford to fight. Now, all at once, the regulatory agencies have to face the necessity of making those choices if you've got a downside risk. Just to clarify here, the people who are going to be defendants that the Madison Fund will uh, jump in and rescue, in a sense, are people that have not harmed anyone through their civil disobedience. Yeah, Caleb, I have a whole chapter in which I have criteria for deciding which regulations can and can't be avoided. Uh, But it, it comes down, this is the overarching criterion. If this case were to be fought out and publicized on a wide scale, would the overwhelming majority of ordinary Americans say they're on the side of the defendant? And there are all all sorts of regulations of which that's true. So for example, if you're not going to have an overwhelming majority, you want to avoid it. I think affirmative action is a mistake. I would like to see people get a relief in terms of the requirements of affirmative action. But that's not going to get overwhelming majority support uh, if you litigate it. And so I would say stay away from everything that doesn't give you that overwhelming support. And over time, here's what I want to have as the result. I want the regulators to have to face up to the same thing that faces a highway patrolman on the interstate every day, where a majority of us are engaged in civil disobedience. Maybe you always obey the speed laws, but I got to tell you, I'm at 73 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour speed zone, and I'm in the with the flow of traffic. The state troopers could technically arrest all of us who are doing that, but they don't. They arrest those who are going way over the speed limit or who are driving erratically. And the analogy is in sports is no harm, no foul. So that in an NBA basketball game, the officials do not call all the transgressions. If it doesn't affect action leading to a basket or, or preventing a basket, no harm, no foul. I want to have a regulatory system where the regulators are forced, kicking and screaming, into a situation where the only violations they go after are ones when they can really say, hey, this, this person did something that was harmful. Now, if this idea got off the ground, uh, there's one result that might be surprising that would be, I think, a positive surprise. And there are, there's so much of uh, – regulation that is on the books at the federal level that simply has never been effectively challenged. And yes. and the government takes great pains in, in some cases to avoid those challenges getting before any judge, mm-hmm. uh, let alone a, a, a higher federal court. They do that sometimes, but I'll tell you, another, another weakness of them is that they will sometimes be engaged in a really stupid enforcement, like the Sackett case that came before the Supreme Court a few years ago, where the EPA was claiming that this family was building a home on wetlands, which meets no reasonable criteria for wetlands. And it was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, where the Sacketts won nine to nothing. Uh, And you would have thought, doesn't the EPA realize that it doesn't have a leg to stand on? But uh, they sort of mindlessly kept on defending their position. And that might be the route whereby we are going to get 
some things to the Supreme Court that are going to provide precedents that are going to make life much more difficult for the regulatory agencies. And it, it's entirely possible that just the existence of this fund could change how oh, yeah. regulators do their jobs. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I said the Wizard of Oz uh, as a, you know, against a lone citizen. I want to pull back the curtain as happened in the movie. And instead of this powerful Goliath, you have a little old guy with thinning hair uh, and a microphone. And he's exposed as being weak and impotent. You know, I do not have a history of being optimistic about solutions. In fact, my, my standard laugh line in every speech is, I'm a libertarian. Libertarians don't do solutions. But in this case, I think this is feasible, and I think it could have an incredible impact. And it's not violent. It's not violent. Right. Which, is a, which is a great selling point if you're wanting to uh, undermine uh, a exactly. large chunk and, of government. And, and, it's, and it's based on the presumption that a lot of people who aren't libertarians are also fed up with ordinary people being senselessly harassed. And so we don't have to convert them to be libertarians, but I think we can appeal to something that they are already ready to believe. You make an appeal in here to uh, the cultural diversity that exists in the United States. You say that it's closer to uh, the founding era than it was, say, in the 1950s, when, as you say, that we were all watching the same news programs. How, why is that relevant? Well, there's lots of, of, uh, of hysterical uh, statements about the United States is entering into an unprecedented period because you're going to have a majority of the population will be non-white by mid-century, and somehow this is going to present unprecedented challenges. And, uh, come on. In the 18th century, even when we were still all ethnically from the British Isles, the cultural differences among the Puritans and the Quakers and the Cavaliers and, and the uh, Scots-Irish were at least as great as cultural differences among ethnic groups. Another thing is happening, apart from ethnic diversity, and Caleb, this is the real key, you now have cultural diversity whereby people on the left want to be left alone. So the cultures that now exist in Portland, Oregon, uh, in Boulder, Colorado, and other places around the country are very distinctive. And suddenly it's not just conservatives who want to have, you know, the government stay out of, of their cultural practices. A lot of people on the left do. Marijuana laws, perfect example. Washington and state and Colorado pass laws that are simply unconstitutional. You know, Federal law trumps state law. That's as basic as it, as it gets in terms of constitutional jurisprudence. Department of Justice is backed off. It's not trying to enforce federal law because this is a liberal uh, Department of Justice and it's liberals who want to be left alone. That is a thin edge of a wedge that can work to wonderful effect uh, in the future. Charles Murray is author of the new book, By the People, Rebuilding Liberty Without Permission. You can learn more about federal regulation and some of its ill effects at our website, cato.org.